Galatians 4, 21 to 31. And this is Paul's last argument against the issues and dangers of legalism that had encroached upon the church so early and so quickly after the gospel had brought to them life. Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. As the grass withers and the flower fades, the holy and errant word of God alone endures forever. May he bless it. Well, we have been really analyzing what forms the basis of our acceptance with God. In other words, we have been looking at Galatians and have seen many times over what it means to be justified. That is, what it means to be pardoned of our sin and accepted as righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. What it means to be a Christian. And we understand and we've seen many times over what is so preeminent about this is that we are looking at the grace of God that has accomplished this work. We cannot look to any work of ourselves but only to what God in his undeserved love, his unmerited kindness has bestowed upon us as unworthy sinners. To understand that it is only by grace, by that love of God toward us in Christ Jesus, that we are saved, that we are made children of God, that we are accepted, that we are justified. And it's such an essential aspect. If you do not hold that truth, you do not have the gospel. That's what Paul is arguing. That's why it is so essential. Anyone who thinks 
that God accepts them because they're a pretty decent person, is living a lie, and is just as much a child of hell as Satan himself is. That's the reality. That's the force of Paul's words. And that's why he has been so urgent to hammer home this truth to the church. Why again is he hammering this to the church foremost and not to the world at this, at this particular time? It's because we're in danger of always returning to the things that we do as that which by we are accepted by God. And the danger then becomes we are shifting our faith from being in Christ and in Christ alone to being in us, ourselves. And that kind of idolatry profits nothing. That's really what it is, idolatry. And we, we always, always as a church, as Christians, we have to be guarded against legalism. Understand what legalism isn't. It is not legalistic to obey the commandments of God as a rule of faith. Jesus calls that love. (laughs) If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. That obedience that we strive for in our lives is an act of love and devotion to God. We're not trying to earn anything from God. We're trying to show God we love you. (laughs) So it isn't legalistic to look at those Ten Commandments and say, here is the rule of life and conduct for me in Christ Jesus. What legalism is, is believing that your conduct, your obedience, is somehow earning favor with God. If we think God loves me because I do, just that one phrase, and you can fill in the blank, God loves me because I do, that's legalism. Because when did God first love you? Was it because you were doing Those things that please him. Look, obedience pleases you. Pleases God. Uh, As a parent, we know when our children are obedient, boy, we're rejoicing. This is great. Because we put up with a lot of disobedience. And we know those aren't pleasant times. But does our love for our children stop in their disobedience? Our demonstration of love changes to discipline. But it's still love, isn't it? We need to know that we cannot earn even the smallest of mercy and love from God by what we do. We just can't. Because we are yet sinful. We are yet dealing with corruptions of our heart. Even the best of our works are marred by that nature of sin that is still within us. Even though we have been released from the power and the penalty of that sin... The presence of sin yet abides within us. And we need to move and shift our thinking. God loves me because I do To Thank God God loves me because look at what I do. (laughs) That's the difference. And Paul is arguing that if you reduce Christianity 
to a list of rules, to a list of traditions, to a list of do's and don'ts. And if you even fall into that trap of simply evaluating someone's spiritual standing by what they do religiously, you've fallen into legalism. You've missed the true gospel. You've become a legalist. And that's what he's arguing here. Even in our text, when he gets down to uh, verses 29 and 30, he's referring to those of the Jewish tradition who have come into Galatia and who are persecuting the Galatian churches, saying that if you do not do all of those things that are found in the Old Testament, then God isn't saving you. You need to go and attend those feast days. You need to go and circumcise your your sons. And you need, and you need to do all of those things. And Paul says, they are persecuting you. Legalism is a form of persecution. And he says, cast that out. And understand what it means for you to be children of promise in the Lord Jesus. Understand what it means, as he says at the end of verse 30, to be free in Jesus and to live free in Jesus. Now, very soon in the coming weeks, we're going to see how important holiness is. But holiness itself is nothing if the gospel hasn't laid root in your life. And that's why he hammers this home one last time. That's why he says in verse 20, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Because what the law keeps saying is, you shall do this, you shall not do this, you shall do this, you shall not do this. And, and you start out thinking, well, okay, I am going to do what the law says and not do what it tells me not to do. And how far do you get in the day without disobeying? You won't make it through half a day without saying, I didn't do what the law commanded. I did what the law told me not to do. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't you hear the law? It speaks of your futility. There's nothing wrong with God's law. There's something wrong with me. I can't fulfill it. Don't you hear that, dear people? And that's why we need the gospel. Because there is one who has fulfilled it. He has fulfilled it to become the righteous one whose righteousness now stands in place of and covers everyone who believes in him. Hallelujah. (laughs) That's our state. I want to say, I was sharing this morning in our house, that before us is perhaps the most difficult technical passage of Scripture. I hope you don't get lost in it. It's got things there that are confusing for us to understand. He talks about a bondwoman, a free woman, Hagar and Sarah, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of old and the new Jerusalem that is above. And there's a whole lot of things here 
that uh, can really lay, waylay us. I, I hope to explain it simply to you. But it is uh, not just the most difficult passage in Galatians, but in Scripture itself. So we work through this. And the first thing that we see in verses 21 to 23 is that Paul is giving a history lesson. He's taking an event which we read already from Genesis 21. A real, a real event that was known because in this time, Galatians probably one of the first letters that was written in the New Testament, the church was all using the Old Testament. And, and that just tells us that the Old Testament does show and point us to Christ and testifies of the glories of Christ for us and is the foundation of what we know and believe concerning God and his gospel. So they would have known this account. And he says, let's look at history. Have a history lesson. We understand that those who are confusing you about the gospel of Christ, they boast in their heritage from Abraham. But they need to understand Abraham didn't have just one son. He had a few. But let's just look at two of them. Let's look at Ishmael and Isaac. These Jews were warned by both John the Baptist and Jesus. Don't presume that because Abraham is your father, that you're naturally just loved by God. We can translate that today. Don't think because you didn't follow Adolf Hitler's practice of killing people that you're loved by God. <laughs> Don't think because you are generally a decent person and live fairly quiet lives without any hostility or problems with people, that God loves you. That's in fact what he is saying. Because the Jews would say, we have Abraham as our father. They even said to Jesus, because Abraham is our father, we have never been in bondage to sin. Oh, really? What history book did you read? <laughs> Don't you... Read the book of Judges? Haven't you read 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles? What makes you think you've never been in bondage? Why is it that you are still in bondage to Rome? Because God has committed you to an enslavement of the nations around you because that's what you have devoted your life to. And that's where they are. They could boast, Abraham is our father. And Paul comes and says that, he's already said it, but he, he comes and says it again. True connection to Abraham rests in your spiritual relationship to God, not your biological relationship to a man. You go back to Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And an heir according to that promise. Do you believe in the one who came from Abraham. To be the savior of the world. That's your spiritual union to Abraham. He believed in that same person. And was saved. You cannot claim to belong to Abraham. If you do not belong to Christ by faith. And if you don't believe this, then just stop, step back and consider. 
Abraham had two sons, verse 22. Ishmael and Isaac. And yet God himself made a distinction between them. One was born of a slave, the other of a free woman. You know this history. Ishmael was approximately 13 years old when Isaac was born. And and Abraham thought that Ishmael was going to be the son of promise. And God said, no. He was born of a bondwoman. He was born of a slave. And, And in that light, Ishmael was still somewhat a slave, even though Abraham was his father. But Isaac was born of Sarah. She, she gave Abraham. Did you notice in Galatians, uh, sorry, in Genesis 21 how it was stated twice that Isaac was the son born to Abraham by Sarah? And if you missed it, let me say it again because it was an amazing event. This nearly 80-year-old woman had a child. Some of you are probably shuddering if you're close to 80 and thinking, oh, are you kidding? (laughs) I've often said as a grandparent, having children is for young people. Uh, You spend two hours with your grandchildren when you're nearing 60 and you're ready for bed and a nap more than they are. It's a reality. 80 years old. But that also brings out the greater distinction. Isaac was born free. Not only was their legal standing different concerning the inheritance, but God makes a greater point that one was born of the flesh. That's what he says here. The one born of the bondwoman, verse 23, was born according to the flesh. The other was born according to promise. Now that has implications for us, we're going to see, but... Bear that in mind. Ishmael's birth was the course of human procreation. I know some people may not like to hear this, but having children is not a miracle. We were created to have children. God established that from creation, that a man and a woman coming together can have children and have them born to them. It's how we were created. A miracle is something that is beyond nature. It is something that needs the intrusion of God's power and glory to do. And that's what he did with Sarah. By my estimation, she was nearly 78 years old. When God opened her womb and gave her strength to have a child and to nurse that child. Unheard of. Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. And because she had passed the age of childbearing, and they kept hearing this promise from God, you will have a son, what did Sarah do? Sarah coaxed Abraham to conceive a son through Hagar. I don't believe God can do a miracle to allow me to have a child. So you, in accordance with the flesh, you, Abraham, go and work and see that that promise gets fulfilled. And that's what happened. You can read about it in Genesis 16. And as soon as Hagar gave birth to a son, 
Sarah got jealous and said to Abraham, what did you do? <laughs> he said, I listened to you. <laughs> and then we get to Genesis 21, and Hagar's son is now persecuting Isaac. And Hagar, as, as Sarah says to Abraham, cast them out. And Abraham's like, this is my son. How do I throw out my son? And God comes and says, listen to your wife. There's some, some uh, paradox for you, man. <laughs> but there's this flesh and promise issue. Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was the one that God had said, Sarah will bear a son. You will call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. Through him will come the promise of salvation, not through Ishmael. And, and that history lesson shows us that, that when Abraham conceived through Hagar, he was not walking in faith with God. He was looking to see, what can my hands do? He was following that idiom that so many people follow, that God helps those who help themselves. What a lie. It is a lie. And Ishmael is what Abraham got for doing things his way. Isaac was the gift, the gift of grace, the gift of promise founded on God's covenant, established by faith. We hear that even in Hebrews 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged God faithful who had promised. There was a fundamental spiritual difference between those two sons. The history lesson. That brings us to the symbolic point that Paul brings out in verses 24 to 27. And he states it very clearly. This is symbolic. This is an allegory. That these two sons represent something for us to understand concerning grace, that undeserved, undeserved, unmerited love and kindness of God to an unworthy sinner. Hagar represented the covenant of Mount Sinai. What he means by that is, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, he then set before them as his holy people, as his holy nation, the rules of conduct in how God was to be worshipped, how Israel was to follow through the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, how they had to come through the high priest, how they had to celebrate those feast days, how they had to do all of these things in order to walk rightly before God. Mount Sinai was the formation of that old covenant way in which God's grace would meet them. 
but they were always pointing to the reality in heaven. What work Jesus Christ would do when he came in the flesh. Hagar represented to Israel the the rites and the ceremonies and all of those things God instituted. Binding them to the temple regulations. Binding them to the way God was to be worshipped. Binding them under this idea, you shall do this, you shall not do this. Now walk before me and be blameless. That's what Hagar represented. Things which were necessary. Necessary not to earn God's grace, but necessary for the grace of God to meet them until Jesus came. Understand that that all those things were necessary to keep their eyes focused on that seed which was promised. That one that Abraham looked to and when he heard the promise of God, he believed in Christ and God accounted it to him for righteousness. They had to wait 1,500 years for Christ to come, for him to fulfill the Passover, for him to fulfill the temple and its worship, for him to fulfill the role and work of the priests, for him to fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Pentecost. Christ fulfilled every one of those things. And now that Jesus has come, that covenant of Sinai is no longer needed. But what was happening where the Judaizers who were coming and saying, you can't give up all of those things. They're necessary. If you want to be truly saved, you must be circumcised. You must go to Jerusalem uh, three times a year. You must keep the Passover. You must, you must, you must, you must. They skipped over Jesus. My friends, do you understand Why we do not celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem? It's because Christ, your Passover, has been sacrificed for you. Do you understand why we do not go to Jerusalem and and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? Because Christ is your tabernacle. He is the one in whom you have collectively become the body of Christ, the dwelling place of His Spirit. Wherever His church gathers, the Spirit of God is there. He's here. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience that. Thank God. You understand why we don't Celebrate the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. This is, this is no small thing in their day. Because this is only a few years after Christ ascended. What do we do with the temple? Christians in their time. Why was Stephen stoned to death? Because Stephen said, we don't need the temple anymore. <laughs> Christ has fulfilled it. But they could not let go of their traditions. And they kept saying these things are necessary. It brings us even to our day. My friends, don't be fooled. 
We have vain traditions in our day. And I know this, this I know always irks people, but why is it that we do not need to celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th? Do you really believe Jesus was born on that day? Do you really see it anywhere in Scripture that we are told to do that? Do you see any reason why we need to go to the Holy Lands and experience where Christ walked? Do you see any need of having holy pilgrimages to quote-unquote holy cities? All of that is unnecessary superstitious tradition because we are celebrating the fullness of Christ incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended here today as his church. We come to the church to do those things. And yet what is being diminished within Christianity today the necessity of going to church. The one reality that God calls us to is the thing that many Christians lay aside as incidental and not necessary. It's because they have fallen into something uh, of what was happening in Galatia. We'll celebrate Christmas. We'll come to church in those holy seasons. My friends, the Lord's day is the holy day. God says, come and worship. I've made the way clear and simple. But we lose that. We get caught up in the rites and ceremonies. And by doing so, we become like Hagar in bondage, like Israel that wanted to lay hold of their temple instead of laying hold of Christ. And this is the difference. Charles Spurgeon said, uh, we always go to Charles Spurgeon to say the difficult things that Presbyterians don't like to say or hear. So these are his words. But he said, that the law is the most rigorous master in the world For after all that you have done, the law never says thank you. Rather it says, go on, do more, don't stop. The better legalist a man is, the more sure he is of being damned. The more a man trusts in his own works to procure him holiness the more he may rest assured of his final rejection and eternal portion with the Pharisees. It's the way it is. That's Hagar. But Sarah represented the new covenant. That's the allegory here. She represents not the Jerusalem that's on earth, the Jerusalem that is in heaven. She represents the city of the living God. She represents that place where Christ dwells as the mediator of the new covenant. Because no more do we hear those words of the law saying, you must do this, you shall not do that. 
Instead, what we hear through the merits of Christ, God is saying, you need to be born again. And I will give you that new heart. Do you hear the difference? It's not you shall go and get for yourself a new heart. I will give it to you, says our God. You need to be cleansed of your sins. I will wash you clean through the blood of my son. Isn't that amazing? I will do this. You need to be rid of your guilt for your sins. I will take away your your condemnation. And I will do it through the death of my son. You hear the difference? You need the penalty of death removed. I will give you eternal life. And all you have to do is believe in my son. And you will not perish. What a difference. No longer, you shall, you shall. It's, I will, I will. That's grace. And that's why, as you see in verse 27, that's why we rejoice, we break forth, we shout. Because we, who were barren and desolate of anything worthy before God, have now in Christ received every spiritual blessing from God. All because of his grace. You do not earn a single blessing from God. He gives it through his son. Believe on him. You will be saved. Isn't What a difference. And that's where he brings us in the closing verses here. I know our time is moving on. But again, a technical passage here that has to be understood. That's where he comes in verses 28 to 31 to say, here's the real freedom. We are children of promise. The true Israel of God who are those who are children of promise like Isaac. Where a divine work of God has taken place in your soul and you have been born again, not of yourselves, but you have been born again of the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, how do I know I have a new heart? Do you love God for sending Jesus to take away your sins and to bear your condemnation in death? Only a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit can say, I believe. That's the truth. And from that work of God's grace proceeds your faith, your repentance, your acceptance and forgiveness, your adoption, your hope of glory. It all is contingent on Christ. And thank God it is. I would have lost my salvation a thousand times over if it didn't rest in Christ alone. But it does. And so I am saved. Praise the Lord. You will be persecuted for it. Just as Ishmael mocked Isaac, so you will be persecuted. Ishmael treated Isaac with contempt because Isaac was the child of promise. Paul says, even so now, it's the same. Persecution comes from those who ridicule because you think that faith alone is what saves you. My dear friends, did you know 
that in 1572, on August 23rd, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, that between 30 and 50,000 Christians, actual Christians, were killed because they believed that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That was the great anathema that the Church of Rome pronounced on the Protestants. If you believe that you are saved by your faith alone and not by the works and traditions of the church, you are cursed. And they went out on that day and killed between 30 and 50,000 Christians. Something Rome has never apologized for either. You know, the days of apologies. But it's a reality. You will be persecuted for this gospel. Why? Because men do not like to hear that they can't save themselves and that they are not good enough for God. That's the heart. They will hate you before they love the gospel. Just as Isaac was hated by Ishmael. That's a reality. But you live free in Christ. You are freed from the bondage of sin. You are freed from the guilt and condemnation your sins deserve. You are freed from the penalty of death. Death for us is now glory. <laughs> You're free. Live as free people in Christ, not in bondage to works and your own doing. Cast out that bondwoman and her son. Stand in Christ alone. Let us pray.